Welcome to Cracking Charity Chat, learning from the leaders with me, Beth Crackles. In this episode, I'm talking with Jennifer McKenna, who's a leadership coach. Jen's had a really interesting journey in the charity sector, from working at Breakthrough Breast Cancer in the 90s as a fundraiser, through to now where she's working as a freelance coach with recent clients including ActionAid, Charities Aid Foundation, Breast Cancer Care and the Red Cross. I found this a really interesting chat. We cover things like the three components of trust in relation to leadership, women in leadership, a really useful model about stretching yourself, so the comfort zone, the stretch zone, the panic zone, which is really interesting. Um, you can relate that to leadership or not, as I have done myself in the past. And lots of other things which I think will be really interesting to listeners. Jen and I thought it would be good to do this podcast ahead of our session at the Institute of Fundraising Yorkshire Conference on the 24th of May. We're delivering a session on emotional intelligence, leadership and how you might adapt your leadership style. Um, Jen is the absolute boss in this area. Really looking forward to it. And if you're there, hopefully we'll see you. I hope you enjoy listening. This evening's broadcast is brought to you by myself and Jennifer McKenna, leadership coach extraordinaire. Hello. From my kitchen. <laughs> yeah, from Jen's kitchen. I'm just ignoring the gin cabinet that's in the <laughs> corner, actually. Well, I get the. I'm. I'm not. I've got my back to the washing up, so <laughs> that's not distracting me. But you've got to look at the debris of children's tea behind my back. Preferable in your home rather than my own. <laughs> this evening, we're drinking uh, decaf tea and having a sensible chat about leadership development. Jen, do you want to give an introduction yeah. to yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. So I started by studying music and from that decided, apropos of nothing much, that I really wanted to do events fundraising. Um, don't we all? Think don't we all? I think every Absolutely, yeah. Sounds fun. Yeah, you, you don't, as a student, you don't think, oh, I know what I fancy, major gifts, because you don't know what that is. But events, everyone can get their head around what an event is it sounds kind of glamorous and fun and of course it's really hard work in real really life hard work. um so I spent my 20s at Breakthrough Breast Cancer doing events fundraising which was amazing and taught me all sorts of stuff about leadership I was surrounded by some fantastic leaders during that time I then did a bit of work at Tommy's baby charity I landed at VSO heading up uh, an events and community fundraising team just post financial crisis I was made redundant from that role which I was quite happy about at the time, actually, because that role had taught me that what I really enjoyed about leading a team was leading a team, not necessarily the fundraising bit. Am I allowed to say that on a fundraising podcast? (laughs) Yeah, you're allowed to say that. (laughs) And I thought, okay, great, I'll, I'll try and find a role that sort of combines my decade of events fundraising experience with the thing I like around developing people. And whilst I was doing that, I volunteered in the VSO learning and development team, designing and delivering some lunchtime learning events. And I did land a role, actually, which was a sort of had a bit of training focus on it. And I went to my head of learning and development and said, I've just got this role. And she said, stop right there. I think we'd like you to do something for us instead. Um, And I stuck around there instead, doing a project around performance management at VSO. And from there, I got a a um, permanent role and decided that I needed to study a bit I needed to gen up a bit on learning and development and my very wise director said you know what we could really do with an internal coach so VSO supported me to train as a leadership coach and that was in about 2011 
So I've been coaching leaders and managers, heads of team, and also private clients um, since then. And also, you know, alongside my learning development manager role at VSO, which was around management development, leadership development, culture change, Mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. And for the last two and a half years, I've been a freelance leadership coach working with a lot of fundraising heads of, a lot of Mm -hmm. directors, a lot of clients not from the charity sector at all, which has been very interesting and a great learning experience for me. There are a couple of things that are quite interesting from what you just said. One is that you started out doing the performance management thing. That's an interesting start, dealing with that, a funny issue. Well, the, the great thing about it was that I had a very recent experience of managing a team through a performance management process. And at that time at VSO, we did 360 feedback, but we did it in a way where the manager emailed like about six people to say, please could I have yeah. some feedback? And then, so it, literally everybody's inbox is just ground to a halt during that time because everyone was deluged. And obviously the more senior you got, the more people you w- were, the more you were asked. Yeah. And uh, everybody's inbox just ground to a halt. And then managers had to try and extrapolate out useful feedback from, you know, really understandably like long essays about how lovely someone was, which were brilliantly intentioned but not that useful sometimes so part of the process was to we brought in a a 360 feedback tool based around the organization's values and competencies which just structured that in a way that helps people say something meaningful and useful and supported that with feedback training for people good feedback practice and how you might do written feedback in a productive way and so it was really it should come on to that in a bit because I think the the feedback technique, the only one that I can actually name is the shit sandwich. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which classic. is really unfortunate. Yeah, it's unfortunate, I must be aware of them, but I just can't name yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. So maybe let's come back mm. to that. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that you said you sort of really preferred the leadership bit as mm. opposed to the fundraising specifically. Yes. If anyone who was at Breakthrough Breast Cancer in the noughties is listening, wasn't it amazing? Um, we had such a great time. Um, we were t- ev- such a creative team. We had loads of support d- down due in part to the team and generating that support. Um, but also, you know, we we just had, it was just, everything came together and we had great leadership. And I then, and then um, I went away traveling in 2007 and came back to a very different world. And actually fundraising was a lot harder and I went into um, international development, which is a much harder sell. Mm-hmm. And I inherited targets that had been set, like through no one's fault. I just I inherited targets which were set pr- with pre two thousand and seven climate in mind, and it felt like a completely different beast. Parts of it I really enjoyed, and I loved the fact that I could add value because I didn't realise how much I'd learned at Breakthrough until I got to other places and realised that there was lots that I had to offer. But the bits I loved the most were like the team away days and, you know, working with really talented individuals and, you know, that that just really, just really turned me on. Yeah. Oh, God. (laughs) You know, in a professional sense. Didn't expect that this evening. (laughs) Okay. My first sort of proper question is, what is leadership development? 
Mm. on what is leadership coaching. So leadership development is working with people to help them, broadly speaking, think about two areas. One is who are they as a leader in terms of what's their authentic leadership. I'm talking about what's their vision as a leader. What are their values as a leader? What do they want to give back as a leader? I think Paul said this in your podcast before Christmas. As a leader, you you need to be able to articulate where you're going. Otherwise, people are confused and won't necessarily follow you. So a lot of leadership coaching is around helping people work out what that vision is. Where do they want to go? And then helping them think through how they're going to get there. So there's the sort of the vision and the values piece and who am I as a leader and what do I stand for and where is this organisation going and what is my remit here and, and that kind of piece. And that's really interesting for people who have moved up into a senior role because they're often there, you know, from going from a head of team to a director, for example, your remit and your influence is suddenly much very different to being a a head of team you've actually got a lot of agency in the direction of the organization so working with people through that journey of realization that they now actually not only do they have some influence but actually it's part of their role to exert that influence Mm. is a really fascinating journey and a really uh, like privilege to work with people along that way I find that step up quite interesting as well because a lot of people get promoted because they're really good at what they do Mm. and then they find themselves in a different environment within the same organization completely completely perhaps doesn't play to their their skill sets and that's why I was interested in the like you know you preferred the leadership to the fundraising I've come across people who get promoted and they're like I just don't like managing a team or you know it's really difficult or I don't and I think we are sort of sold a myth well not sold a myth but like there's definitely an assumption that I had when I was in my 20s and I definitely manage people who are laboring under the illusion that the only way up is into management whereas actually there are lots of ways to be a leader and it isn't necessarily going up the management hierarchy you can go down the specialist route there's lots of ways of you being a leader and a lot of organizations through lack of budget aren't able to necessarily support their new managers and new leaders to develop that broader range of skills that they need which brings me on to the second bit of leadership Sorry, development, yeah. that's all right, which is very much about how we adapt as leaders. So your point about being really good at your job, we get so far in our working life on our natural style and our natural abilities and our natural way of doing things. And then it gets to a certain level or maybe a certain particular challenging project, for example. And suddenly the way we've always done things is not working Like maybe there's a person that we just don't seem to be able to build a relationship with or we just Mm. can't understand or we're not getting the results that our colleagues are expecting from us. And that's like completely normal and completely understandable if we've had limited management and leadership development. And so a lot of the work in leadership coaching I do is around self-awareness, understanding my natural style, understanding how I approach things normally when I'm in my comfort zone and then thinking about when I might need to adapt that style to suit the context so I get a different result and that really is fascinating work talking to clients who are stuck and then through coaching helping them see another possibility of a way of being or a way of looking at something or a way of approaching a situation it's about expanding their toolkit really giving them more approaches to call upon when they when they need it 
it's irrelevant that I used to be a fundraiser when I'm working for my fundraising clients. My fundraising knowledge is woefully out of date, but they might say, you know what it's like. And I might know what it's like, but I only know what it's like for me. I need to hear from them what it's like for them, because that's what we're working with. Actually, in some ways, it's more straightforward for me to coach somebody who's, I don't know, a civil engineer or something, because I know nothing about that world. And therefore, I'm not distracted by the the content. I'm listening for their emotional experience. I'm listening for what makes them passionate. I'm, I'm working with them and not distracted by, you know, the context. Yeah. So when I was doing my master's, which I just seem to talk about on the podcast all the time, but it's just <laughs> that is coincidental. Why not? So you've got to get your money's worth from it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm basically Professional still paying it off. Cheap. <laughs> yeah. So when I was doing that, part of it required me to shadow a leader mm. and I shadowed Kath Abrahams, who was at Breakthrough Breast Cancer, oh, actually, yes. but probably after your I know, time. no, no, no. And that was brilliant. And then I was really fortunate that Kath, I think she was doing like a coaching course or some mm. some very fancy coaching mm. course and she needed some guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. So I benefited from some coaching with her. And I, it was just like transformational in terms mm-hmm. of, it was when I stepped up into my head of fundraising mm. role at Toynbee Hall. Mm-hmm. So I thought that co- coaching was amazing. But I think reflecting back on that and what you've just said, I was also probably a little distracted at the time thinking oh but Cass brilliant at this she knows what she's doing maybe she should just tell me what to do, mm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? so the difference is if I tell you what to do then that's helpful for you in the moment mm. but if I coach you to come up with the solution that is correct the right for you it's more likely to be an appropriate solution because you know your context and the situation better than anybody else and I've also helped you find a tool that you can then use again I think it develops coping mechanisms as well. I think obviously the stuff that I did with Kath was coaching and it was labelled as coaching, but previous manager Tracy Pritchard, who managed me at RNIB and sort of a bit at Friends of the Earth as well, that's the approach that she takes. I can't think of an example where she's actually told me the answer. Even when I've sort of gone to her Mm. and gone, please help me, what do I do? She's always taken this sort of approach that gets me Mm. to the place myself. It develops a sort of reflective muscle where if you if you're used to being coached and you've had a a fair amount of coaching you know the steps to go through you know the the way to start thinking about something Mm. you know it's not just a lovely chat like it can be challenging and there's a real competency in coaching around direct communication which is about you know asking the tough questions or noticing the place that the client doesn't want to go and with their permission going there because if there's something about their performance or their approach that isn't working but they just haven't got quite got the energy to address it then that's probably the area that they'll get some value out of addressing Mm. so previously we've been talking about simon sinek's red hat so do google simon sinek red hat basically he talks about as a leader making your red hat visible So there are certain people in the world that we know, for example, if I say Mother Teresa, what would you say she stands for? God, I don't want to get this wrong. (laughs) I just know right or wrong answer. I don't know. It's interesting Um, to see if it's the same as what I think. Caring, nursing. Yeah. Kind. Kind. (laughs) Yeah. So she's really showing her, she really showed her red hat. Her values are writ large. And in a workplace, you want your 
leadership values to be easily spotted. It's a bit of an alien concept to think about what's my value as a leader. It's a bit esoteric. It's a bit intangible, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But values are another reason why your team will follow you. And building trust is really important. So if your team members know you're about fairness or they know you're about passion for the cause or they know you're about championing junior members of the team whatever it is that you're about then they're more likely to understand you yeah want to be part of your gang your community to go all sort of fundraising commercial on it it's about knowing your brand isn't it but instead of your charity's brand it's about your brand yeah oh god but there's so much about that at the moment and I really struggle with it because do you know Twitter yeah (laughs) (laughs) because and it's something that you've said to me as well about like you just tell the story that you want people to hear like it's your choice what you tell people but like there are people making careers for themselves by supporting people to develop the best story of themselves do you know what I mean Mm. you could go to a workshop and developing your personal brand yeah and oh it's just all I it's I know it's just my thing and my problem but I find it really uncomfortable and yeah and I think you're not the only person and so what do we know about brands so when a brand says it's going to do one thing it says it's going to be I don't know trustworthy and that's what it builds its brand on and then it messes up somehow, it loses trust, it loses integrity, and therefore we don't believe it anymore. We've lost our trust with that brand. So I think branding makes us feel a bit cringy because we are used to brands letting us down. Or maybe just being corporate, being 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 something that they're not. There's a really fabulous study around trust and the components of trust in a manager, for example, and they are benevolence, so being caring, competent so being able to do your job and the other one is integrity so out of those three components of trust which do you think you can mess up on well competency you can screw up yeah yeah i mean we all all have haven't (laughs) we (laughs) reference uh your um booking a flight to edinburgh (laughs) Uh, and, and people forgive us right so like everybody drops the ball sometimes we can also mess up a little bit on benevolence. So if we come in one day and we've got a re- had a really bad day, we will be forgiven for the odd bad day. But integrity, if we mess up on that, if we say we're going to do something we don't, or we say we're something and our actions say that we're not, then that is really hard to come back from if you want a relationship that's based on trust. So, you know, if we keep hearing a leader tell us that they're going to do one thing and their actions suggest that they're not living that then there's no integrity and that's where as a leader I think you lose people so thinking about your red hat it's a really useful exercise to think about what your values are as a leader because they're like guiding principles mm. so say one of my values is around kindness I can say to myself okay if I was living the value of kindness today what would be top of my list and what would I be doing differently to what I had already planned if I was living the value of passion what would I be doing that was top of my list that's different? Who would I be speaking to? What are the relationships that I would be building? Yeah, I see what you mean. And I'm thinking about the more sort of prolific senior people that I see on social media and what they say is just, is really consistent and they're on it yeah. all the yeah. time. I very much doubt that that will be a coincidence. They will have thought about that. Yeah. Or that it will be, well, it will be the 
the product of a lot of experience and a lot of reflection and a lot of thought about what's important to them right now. Because let's face it, when you're in a big job, everything is urgent and important, isn't it? And you kind of have to decide where you're going to spend your time. And if you've got a vision that will help you work out where what's going to help you get to that vision and what's just noise. And if you've got some guiding values, that's going to really guide you as to how you're going to go about that. Are there some leaders in the sector that you really admire? The CEO at Breakthrough when I was there was Delith Morgan. She was an amazing leader and um, I had no idea how amazing she was until I wasn't working for her anymore because she was the first CEO that I'd ever actually had a conversation with because before that I'd had, you know, dreadful temp jobs where the CEO was sort of two continents away in a gold and silver plated office or whatever. And I remember the first day that I met Delith I, I was just chatting to this really nice lady in on Daily Tea and Cake, which happened at Breakthrough in 1999. And afterwards, my friend Greg said, I said, oh, who was that? And he was like, well, that was Delith, the CEO. And I was like, oh, my God, the CEO. But she was just a really lovely lady who was interested in who I was and what I was doing there. And she was just incredibly approachable, incredibly empowering, had an absolute instinct for knowing when to be present and when to get out of the way of her team so that they could be amazing. Fabulous lady. That leads us in nicely to women in leadership. Mm. I think on this we were, we were going to talk about basically the different views about women women mm. in leadership. So you were saying previously about some people are like, stop calling it women in leadership, it's just leadership. But it does feel like it's different because of the different challenges facing women. So Yeah, what's your, I think there's no, we can't take away from the different challenges facing that women have or the specific challenges that women have. You know, I work with a lot of clients who are just returning from maternity leave and I have two small children myself, as do you. So I'm very aware of the particular challenges that are faced both organisationally, you know, going back to an organisation that's changed, going back when your own life has changed, going back when your confidence levels have probably changed, yes. or your sense of why identity it, has changed. Why does that happen? It's <laughs> funny, isn't it? Because actually, as parents, we've just acquired a whole bucket of new skills, and yet we kind of dismiss them and focus on all those skills that we perceive to be really rusty. I think those are really important conversations to have. But I also think leadership is leadership. And we sometimes will have a, have a colleague who is particularly vocal on this. We run the risk of it being a bit reductive if we talk about women in leadership, as if somehow women, as a general rule, have a different set of approaches and skills to men, which is sort of patronising to everybody. Yeah. And doesn't take into account the very unique journeys that all of us have had to get to where we are. And as a coach, you have to learn to, like, not make any assumptions about what anybody is capable of. You know, I have clients who have achieved amazing things with an 18-month in tow. And I've, like, you know, the, the, the voice in my head has been like, really? Like, that sounds like it's going to be challenging. Are you sure? Like, how are we going to support you to get that? And they've done it. And I'm like you know amazing but let's not um make it all about gender the other thing i believe about leadership it's not it's not about a position you hold you perhaps start thinking about it when you start holding a position which is senior enough for you to start believing that you might be a leader but actually some of the best some of the most effective and compelling leaders i've known have been colleagues you know on paper quite junior roles yeah yeah likewise they've just been really clear about what they stand for and what they want Mm -hmm. They've been really great at bringing people along with them, not necessarily 
charismatic and extrovert leaders, but just, you know, sometimes quiet and quiet and committed leaders. That's my experience as well. Um, specifically of somebody who was a junior in the team at Tomby Hall when I started. For me, as a leader, I think nurturing talent is is probably like my thing. Yeah. So I think there are there are sort of core competencies that I have around doing a job in terms of strategy and planning, but in terms of just sort of reflecting on when I was in that head of role, probably what people would would sort of associate me with sort of championing the mm-hmm. team and and the leadership mm-hmm. of the sort of young people within it. What benefit was it to you and the organisation that you held that value? I think it meant that the team worked above and beyond their job descriptions consistently mm-hmm. and happily mm-hmm. um, because they were pleased that they were being invested in and that mm-hmm. they were being recognised and there were mm-hmm. opportunities that weren't necessarily paid for. You know, there mm-hmm. was there was training and stuff that I tried yeah. to secure for them, but it was more about opening networks so that and encouraging them to be part of the wider sort of fundraising community mm-hmm. so yeah go out and find a coach or a mentor or mm. whatever you think is going to work for them and and you know go to networking events and mm-hmm. oh you like what that person's doing just give them a call or like mm-hmm. drop them an email and see if they want to meet for a coffee because I think that's what that's what helps to strengthen the sector as a whole mm-hmm. so yeah and in terms of the fundraising the fundraising improved significantly mm. I would say. as it would with happy so, yeah. committed yeah colleagues and but there's something I heard years ago now about somebody saying oh well why should we invest in people what if they leave and the response was yeah but what if we don't and they stay yeah absolutely that's, that's always really stuck with me yeah yeah, yeah. but I did invest in them and they did leave <laughs> But I bet you got some really great work from them while they were there. Yeah, and I think looking back on the three things that you were saying in terms of trust as a leader, so uh, being competent, sort of competent, benevolent and integrity, I Mm. think, yeah, that's the bit, the integrity bit is probably the bit that I didn't mess up on. I don't think, but probably made mistakes elsewhere. Mm. Well, definitely made mistakes elsewhere. (laughs) But that's the, that's the, the... that's another You've thing. You've just found that... my red hat. Yay! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we um, we do, you know, a lot of work I do as well is is, uh, is with very talented individuals who are very committed and have very high standards for themselves. And learning to fail sometimes is really difficult. But actually, letting go of the need to be perfect is a really important, valuable mm. lesson. Because again, when we get to a more senior role and there's absolutely everything to do and only so many hours in the day, we can either run ourselves ragged and get ill and therefore ineffective, or we can prioritise. I found that a lot easier to do when I was managing a team, not just in terms of being able to delegate, but I think when I felt the responsibility of my gang, do you know Mm. what I mean? If we were asked to do more from above, Mm -hmm. as it were then I'd be like, okay, so what what do you want me to drop then? Mm -hmm. Which bit are we going to drop? Because we can't do it all. Mm -hmm. When you're in a pressured environment, you've just got to drop the idea that you're going to do perfect work. Mm. Like there is no perfect work, is there? It's like when you get to a certain level, it's quite subjective. There are many roads and paths that we could choose. Let's choose one of them, see what happens. If we make some mistakes, so it doesn't go how how we 
thought, then there'll be some really useful learning in there. Now, I recognise that that is flawed somewhat when there's lots of thousands of pounds of donors' money at stake and therefore the pressure to choose the right road is really, really pressing. But I think there is definitely, we could, I think that we could, as leaders, probably give ourselves a little bit more slack in that. I'm just reminded of like maths GCSE where you had to do a challenge and they didn't really mind if your challenge worked out or not. You just had to show the working and they were interested in like the journey that you'd been on Mm. and the thinking that you'd done. I just think sometimes when things don't go as planned, they you end up with a more interesting and enriched product or experience. But it depends what your definition of success is. And something that you said to me a while ago when I was um, not in the best place <laughs> was um, what is good enough for you yeah. in terms of the standard of your work? Yeah. What is good enough yeah. for you? Yeah. When I'm working with leaders who are in a very challenging context and you know, we're all working in sort of volatile and certain times. And it, in sometimes it is actually does not work to take them to a vision of how they would like things to be because it feels so far off and so unlikely and so unrealistic that it just feels like a pointless conversation. And so, okay, knowing what you know about this situation, what does good enough look like for yeah. the next month, for the next two months? Because sometimes when we're really deep in it, you, you can't go from really deep in it, in it to suddenly all zen and reflective. You know, it's just a, too much of a leap. It's about slowly finding a reflective space to focus on something small and some small steps. Mm. Let's just touch on one other area. Mm. Well, two things, really. One was about imposter syndrome. This is something that's obviously quite topical in the sector. But I wonder if some people are conflating imposter syndrome with you know nervousness about certain things Mm -hmm. as opposed to I'm not sure I should have this seat at the table Mm -hmm. because I think there are I think there are some different things there so from my own experience there there are things like I just used to hate hate having to speak in front of people Mm -hmm. I don't mean public speaking Mm -hmm. I mean like saying my name in a meeting Mm -hmm. I'd just be like Oh my god mm-hmm. i'm gonna pass out but all i have to do is say my name and nobody even cares they mm. don't even know my name that's not imposter syndrome obviously but it can sort of then develop and manifest itself into that as you move along throughout your career and people have, mm-hmm. can see how you've progressed through mm-hmm. certain roles but an example of i think of when i had to get grip of myself recently when i did sort of feel that imposter syndrome was when i was asked to speak on this panel at NCVO's conference on the mm-hmm. future of fundraising, which would be, like, I'd be pretty nervous about that anyway because mm-hmm. I have to stand up and say more than just my name. Mm-hmm. And You'd hope. <laughs> yeah, I managed to say a couple more things than my name. Great. And I managed to breathe in between. Right. It was, oh, I totally rocked it. Um, but, yeah, I was speaking alongside people who I would not have put myself alongside because, to mm-hmm. me, they're like, oh, my God, look at them, they're, like, People know who they are and they like write mm. in the sector press and people mm-hmm. want to hear from them, stuff like that. And yeah, I had to have a little word with myself because I wouldn't have been asked to do it if I didn't have anything sensible to say. Mm-hmm. And I had to think about what was unique about me mm-hmm. in that situation. And it wasn't just that I was, uh, you know, a little bit 
younger and the only one with a northern accent but I'm sure that helps swing it sometimes <laughs> but um yeah a different experience mm. and mm. a different background and from very different organizations mm. um and now sort of bringing a regional perspective mm. so um, what helped you overcome your imposter syndrome there honestly I think it was just speaking to a couple of friends who were like helped me get a grip on it there wasn't anything scientific or mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. helpful coaching behind mm. it <laughs> and what helped you what what do you now believe about yourself oh this is this is really cringy but like I have a I have a relevant and important voice within the sector yeah I mean that feels awful saying that out loud yeah and what nobody will be seeing was that you pulled a really <laughs> really kind of cringy <laughs> face when you my say, eyes. say that it just feels awful saying it out loud I'm see See, for me, I've been much happier being um, being like in the background, doing mm-hmm. the strategy stuff and, mm-hmm. and sort of making, lining everything up. And mm-hmm. then, I mean, the rule is with fundraising, isn't it, and supporters that you always put the right person in the meeting. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't necessarily just be you. Mm-hmm. So there have been occasions when I've been the right person to be in the meeting, but it's not always. I've never mm-hmm. had a problem with saying, mm-hmm. no, I shouldn't go to that meeting or you shouldn't go to that meeting. Do you have anything else to say on imposter syndrome? I'm going to leave that on. only that I have experienced it myself and sought some coaching. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) uh, Because I kind of knew where I wanted to get to. I knew what I wanted to believe about myself and I knew the space that I wanted to inhabit, but I needed to let go of some unhelpful beliefs that I hadn't quite even worked out that I held. But I knew that there was something Mm. that was some sort of bit of baggage that I was carrying around that was unhelpful and wasn't Mm. allowing me to step into that leadership role. I mean, in terms of having a voice, because as you say, with fundraising, as with coaching, in my opinion, doesn't matter. Yeah. Like it's not, it's really like what I think is totally relevant. And so in my coaching, I mean, this would be the most that any of my coaching clients have heard me speak. You know, I'm not. It's the best I've heard you speak. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not in, you know, I'm in the conversation, obviously, but I'm, it, it's not about my opinion it's not what mm-hmm. my opinion is is not does not matter and therefore finding um a space where I was able to inhabit a sort of expert role or having some useful experience to share role felt a little bit in conflict with that but you know that's why that's why coaching's so great yeah <laughs> one thing that I think you might have been alluding to sort of early in the day when we spoke with the notion of stretch and mm-hmm. that's something that a friend said to me years ago he sort of described it as three concentric circles, the inner circle being your comfort zone, mm-hmm. the next one being mm-hmm. your stretch yeah, zone. zone, then the further one... Panic zone. Panic zone. I might have termed it something yeah, else. Yeah, it's commonly no, yeah, it's commonly known as something a bit ruder, yeah. And there's a the thing with comfort zones and stretch zones and panic zones. In order to go to them out of our comfort zone, we need to be able to see the payoff. So... If I am naturally the sort of person who likes to make decisions by consulting with everybody and reading all the facts and thinking about it for two weeks, in order for me to move to a quicker and perhaps more immediate, making tough, a tough decision quickly, for example, in order for me to make that, to move to that space, I need to see what the payoff is for me, for my organisation, because otherwise why would I go there? You know, why, why would I move out of my comfort zone? And that's why, where coaching is really amazing because obviously you can have that conversation and talk about what that payoff is and motivate someone to actually want to step out of their comfort zone because they can see the impact that it will have. 
I think the, the example I'm thinking, I often think about with decision making is like there's an earthquake somewhere in the world and you work for a humanitarian charity. What you don't want is your senior leadership team to sit around for two weeks thinking about how to respond to that. You want someone to make a, a, a decisive move to yeah. say, this is how we're going to respond. This is what I need you guys to do on the ground. And the payoff's fairly obvious, isn't it? Human lives is what we're talking about. Mm. It's not always that obvious if we're thinking about, you know, some of us are more inclined to come at a situation or a challenge from the people perspective. And some of us are more naturally wired to come at to a challenge or situation from a getting the task done perspective. Neither of those two things are always right. It's completely governed by the context. If you're leading a team through a change process, then the chances are that you might want to dig into your toolkit for some people-focused approaches. You might want to spend time with your team. You might want to take on board their opinions. You might want to bring them along with you. If you've got a deadline on a fundraising campaign that is up against it, and is worth millions of pounds to your charity, the chances are you're going to maybe get a better result and a better payoff by going down to the task mm. side of approach, your approach. And, and most of us do that sort of adapt, adaptation really naturally every day at work because we are emotionally intelligent and mm. we've worked out what, what tools we need and how we need to approach things to get things done most effectively. But all of us have blind spots and sometimes we need to think through the payoff. Yeah. You know, if I'm a very task-focused person, I, I'm just going to be totally bewildered about the need to be people-focused during a change process because I'll be focused on what the change is going to look like. Yeah, and delivering it. And delivering it. Yeah. And, and that is not... I am not a wicked and evil person for thinking that. I just have a preference for being task-focused, which when the campaign needs to get out the door will be a really fantastic asset in this team. But I might need some help or coaching to understand the payoff to sometimes take a walk into the people-focused side yeah. of things. And I might need help with what that looks like and what it feels like and how I'm going to find the tools to do it and how I'm going to report back, you know, how I'm going to be supported along the way. And yeah. that's what coaching is often about. Final question for you. Yeah. Is there a book, person or ethos that has inspired your work? I really like the work of Daniel Goleman that he did around emotional intelligence. He wrote a book called New Leaders, The New Leaders, which is applying emotional emotional intelligence principles to leadership, which I think is a really great read for anyone interested in boosting their leadership potential. Yeah, Cool. Okay. So let's wrap it up there. Thanks for joining me and hosting me. Jen and I are going to be talking about emotional intelligence. And leadership and adapting your leadership style. We're going to cram all of that into 45 minutes yeah. at the IOF Yorkshire conference in May. On the Friday, Friday the 24th of May. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So join us if you can. Yeah, Thanks we'd love to much. see you. three highlights from my chat with Jen are as follows. First of all, these three components of trust in relation to leadership. I think they're really important, but also help you as a leader to be able to cut yourself a bit of slack, actually, when you mess up in some of those areas. So I'm thinking 
you know, when we drop the ball operationally, let's say, um, so competence, it's fine, it's okay in terms of benevolence if you're having a bit of a rough day. But when you find your red hat, check out Simon Sinek for that. It's really important that you stick to that, so you stick to integrity. It's a really simple concept and one that should be quite easy for most people to stick to. The second thing, and this is something that Jen has said to me before when I was having a bit of a sort of rough time, is work out what's good enough for you. So being a bit of a perfectionist, it can be a little bit difficult to just deliver on the brief, deliver what you say you're gonna do. But I think if you work out what is a good enough standard and a quantity of work to deliver, that can be really helpful. The third thing that I found really interesting from this chat is exploring in more detail this notion of stretch. So the three concentric circles, comfort zone, stretch zone and panic zone. And there have been times when I'm sure like everybody, I've been more towards the panic zone and ensuring that you have the support in place for yourself in your own sort of personal life and in your professional life as well. And working out where you're happy to be between those three circles at any given time is quite useful. So for me, it's about understanding where I am in my personal life and therefore how stretched I'm able to be and still be able to perform really well. I hope you enjoyed listening to this. I hope you took some good learning from it and some good practical tips as well. If you've enjoyed listening, then please do rate it if you're on iTunes. Thanks so much. Catch you next time.